0: All right, if you'd open up to Romans 12, uh, that would be ideal because I am a big believer in uh, actually looking at the scriptures uh, myself and really calling people to look at it with me. So I'm gonna take time to have you follow along with me, make sure I'm not making this stuff up. Um, Any other Olympic fans? The Olympics begin in five days. Yeah, we're a huge Olympics family. We we absolutely love it. Um, Everyone in my family is an American citizen. Um, However, we make up a unique blend of my four youngest, uh, my four oldest were born at Good Samaritan Hospital right down the road. Uh, They look like uh, immigrants from Norway. Um, and then we have three who were born in China and two who were born in Ethiopia. So we have lots to cheer for during the Olympic Games. It's really fun to, um, to kind of look at that and consider all the different nationalities that are represented. Uh, we do a mini parade of nations just going to Target, uh, just getting our daily necessity. <laughs> uh, we carry the flag, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but it's, it's a lot of fun um, to, to, to you know, just do that. Um, one thing I love about sports is this, I love the objective truth in sports. I love that there's ranking. Um, I love that there's times and who came in first and second and third. If you can't uh, picture it by now, I'm a competitive person, so I really like that. I'm a pastor, and so as a pastor and parent, we deal with a lot of subjective things. Like We don't really know if we're progressing in things. There's so much of what I'm called to do, uh, and whether it's successful or not, will be seen years and years and years from now, and I may never get to, uh, to even see if it's if it's Successful, So I sort of have to yield that up. So there's something about sports that I, I really like. In fact, our, our family's really competitive. Uh, my wife is pretty non-competitive, so she tells you, she actually is. Um, but, but we have to tell our kids regularly that um, eating is not a competition. Um, brushing your teeth is not a speed thing t- uh, to compete. Um, One year I made the mistake of like really making a huge deal of who picked the family Christmas tree. And for years it became this giant competition of who would pick the tree. And my wife at one point is like, you got to turn this off because this is getting bad. So we kind of turn a competition into everything around our home and it's not always a good thing. But the Olympics sort of gives outlet for that. So my sport was was swimming growing up and I love that my mom is here. My mom is here in the third row. She lives down the street and uh, not many people come and watch the swimmers, like four people. So she was one of four people who witnessed my swim career at Prospect High School. Um, So she can vouch for for all of this. You know, the hardest part of swimming for an Enneagram 7, if you uh, follow that at all, these are people who like variety, um, is it is mind-numbingly boring to be a swimmer. Um, I warned my kids, when our kids got into swimming, I said, here's what you're in for, like eight hours of sitting on a hot pool deck for you know, 32 seconds of your child getting wet and swimming at a vent. It's boring for the parents, it's boring for the swimmers to be sure. Uh, the only variety in swimming is the variance in water temperature, um, what kind of stroke you're gonna do. And for Pete's sake, there's only four choices, right? And then what lane you're in. These are the only things that, that change in swimming. Um, and here's, here's the rules in swimming. Jump in the pool, swim to that wall. When you hit it, turn around and go back to the where you just came from. Then you hit that wall and you go back to that wall. That's it. Now if you ever get lost in swimming, you just look down and there's directions for you. It's at the bottom of the pool. You just follow that line until you get to the end. Uh, so it's a miracle that I got to be in that sport and survive, but I did. Um, There's great life lessons found in the pool. And so even as you watch the Olympics over the next couple of weeks, um, just remember some of the things that we're gonna talk about. Let the truths that we talk about sink in. Uh, And yes, I'm being punny when I say that. There are life lessons found in the pool. So you're gonna watch Olympics, maybe you were a swimmer, and here's the big idea I want you to stick, kind of walk away with is this, is to swim in your lane. Swim in your lane. Now this isn't hard to do if you're physically swimming in an event, because swimming over a lane line in the middle of, of a swim is really, really hard to do. But this is actually a metaphor for life. And in life, it's actually really easy to get lost. It's really easy to actually act like there are no lanes and that we can do it all. We can sort of swim whatever we want, wherever we want. So the first thing about swimming in your lane, of course, is to know your lane. Right. So if you're taking notes, I take notes by the way, just because um, I need to stay engaged. So I I sit there and write things down and write questions down and write scriptures down. So if you're taking notes, write down, know your lane. Romans chapter 12, verse three, look at it in your Bible or on your device to follow along with me. It says this, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. When I say know your lane, remember this is a metaphor for life. How do you know your lane? It's just like in swimming. You ask your coach. Your coach assigns your lane. How do you know your lane? You ask the coach. What Paul is telling us here is this, sober thinking he wants us to think soberly. Sober thinking leads to sober living. Isn't it true that the way we think about the world impacts the way that we function in it? And certainly it's true that the way we think about ourselves impacts the way that we act and think and respond and move forward. So think soberly is the admonition. Don't think you are better or worse than you really are. Instead, the goal is accuracy. The grace Given to you, helps you with uh, the famous way of new thinking that Paul talks about in Romans twelve, chapter two. That our mind needs to be renewed with a new way of thinking. Now, what's the opposite of sober? If we're if we're to think sober about ourselves, what's the opposite? It's drunk, right? To think to think drunk about yourself. To be drunk is associated with poor judgment, loss of balance, and blurry truth. Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we all are born with a drunk view of ourselves. We are born with a drunk view of ourselves and even other people. But what does sobriety produce? Uh, Clarity replaces distortion. And steadiness replaces the idea of being tipsy. And reality replaces escape. And sober thinking is the goal. And let me just say this up front: the flesh is no help in getting at an accurate view of who you are. The flesh is no help in, in getting at who other people are around you. It's the role of the spirit. So I can say with confidence that every single person in this room and all of you watching at home, hi. Um, all of us have huge self-importance issues. And generally people fall into one of two camps, although the reality is we actually vacillate between these two. Now maybe your you know, choice uh, uh, is, is self-loathing, maybe it's self-exalting. But the common denominator with both of those is that the center is what? The self. So self-loathing and self-exalting really are two sides of the same prideful coin. In chapter 10 of Romans, Paul has already told us how off we can get when our thinking goes haywire. He says this in Romans 10 too. Just listen. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to what? To knowledge. They have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit To God's righteousness man everyone wants to feel good about themselves everyone wants to feel like they're in the right has anyone noticed that in our area you don't have to attach God to it you have to be religious everyone wants to think they're on the right team that they're righteous and Paul says zeal for God without knowledge leads you to create your own righteousness Gentiles didn't fare much better they came after the fact and they had issues as well So sober thinking is actually a matter of life or death. You would not know it to look at me now, but I am inherently freakishly good at swimming like a frog. It's called the breaststroke in swimming, and I'm just naturally really good at it. As a kid, I absolutely loved football, and I was really great at football until about middle school. In middle school, all of my friends grew, and I didn't. God saw fit to just hit pause on my growth. And so um, I looked in the mirror and I realized that people that looked like the person in the mirror when I looked in the mirror get broken playing football. And so I wisely chose at Prospect High School not to go out for football. They didn't have a surfing team, which I love. They didn't have a cycling team, which no one even knew that was a thing back then, but they had a swim team. So I went out for swimming and sober judgment literally saved my life. An accurate picture of who we are comes from the one who made us. So part of why I can't get enough of the Bible is in the Bible, he reveals who he is, but he also reveals who we are. Sober judgment comes from looking in the mirror. So what does the Bible as mirror say about every single one of us in this room? It says a couple of different things. It says we're all the same, and it says that we're all different the bible teaches us we're all the same and we're all different paul uses our body as a picture for this truth look at verse 4 romans 12 4 says this for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function so we though many are one body in christ and individually members one of another Now, in the old days, there was this stuff that went around with us everywhere called cash, right? Paper and metal that we would carry around and use it to exchange for goods. And every single day in our pockets, in our purses, in our bags, wherever we kept our cash, there was a sermon being preached to us, printed right on paper, printed in metal. What was it? Now, I know some of you are like immediately, in God we trust. That's point one of the sermon. There's a second one, okay? Here it is E pluribus unum. That's Latin because I looked it up, not because I took Latin. That is Latin for out of many, one. Out of many, one. And the wisdom of that, that is so noble. That comes right from Romans 12. The wisdom of that is all over the place on our money. It's sitting there printing uh, on, on there to kind of just communicate to us. By design, individual parts only make sense in relation to the whole. The body certainly preaches that to us all of the time. We are all the same. How are we all the same? Here's what I mean by all the same. As a Christian, we are all the same because we are saved sinners by the grace of God alone. There's no other way in. We're redeemed through childlike faith. There's no other way in. We are joined to one family. There's no other family. So in some ways, we are all the same. And we're all different. Each one here is uniquely thought up dreamt up by God, put together by God. Each one of us here is made on purpose. There's no copies, there's no duplicates, there's no throwaways. Listen to Psalm 139, 13. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous how well I know it. Now we use that as sort of, um, you know, maybe that, that God created us, that God knew us before we were named, all those kinds of things. But think about it in relation to knowing your lane. God designed you on purpose for a specific reason, know your lane, same body, but you differ as much as your calf muscle, as much as your spleen, as much as your eyeball. So as we look around, we pay attention to that. So what's true of individual Christians is also true of churches. You are a gift from God, Christian. You are a gift from God, Calvary. And God gives you gifts. What if we just walked around with that truth each morning? I'm a gift, God, like you dreamt me up, you dreamt up my church, you dreamt up this body, and you give me gifts. So think about your mind and your body, your gender, your IQ, your energy level, your processor speed, your relational smarts, or lack thereof, all of it gifted by God. How about your family? and your experiences and all of the natural abilities that you've been given, all dreamt up, thought up by God. In fact, they are gifts with no return policy. Some of you have tried. God, take it back. I don't want this gift. Not how it works. So every single human being you ever lay eyes on, this is true love. Here's the beauty of Christians. Christians at their spiritual birth receive spiritual birthday presents. What are those? Those are things that you are supernaturally gifted to do. So we come with natural gifts, but we also come with spiritual gifts. Verse two in this passage talks about the need to transform minds because we are all born with a drunk view of ourselves. Let me just offer you um, a couple of unbiblical thoughts that are sort of like shots of alcohol to your thinking. Okay, They can kind of skew what you think about yourself. And if we're not careful, we just drink this stuff in because it's the language of our culture. Here's number one. Number one is this, you can be anything you want to be. You can be anything you want to be. You, through hard work, determination, and by ignoring all the rules that were set up at the beginning of the movie, you can become anything you want to be because you're the hero of your story, and in your gut, you know what's best. That makes for a great movie, makes for a really bizarre life. Makes for a life chasing after the wind. You can't be anything. In fact, here's the shocking truth. I'm not gonna see you next week, so I'll tell you the hard truth. You stink at most things. You're terrible, awful. I want you to look at this guy for a second. Tom Brady has won seven Super Bowls. Do you know that Tom Brady stinks at most football things? He's awful. Blocking, you don't want Tom Brady blocking for you. Receiving, breakaway speed, special teams, kicking, coaching, reffing. Medical personnel, you don't want him fixing your broken leg if you get injured on the field. What is Tom Brady good for? Some of you are like, I lay awake at night thinking that. <laughs> Tom Brady is good because of this. He leads with diligence, he passes accurately, and he orchestrates wins. That's what Tom Brady is good at. Look at this grainy news clip from 1994. In 1994, 17-year-old Tom Brady right up the road is being interviewed, and they said this kid has a strong arm, an accurate throw, and a huge work ethic. Notes, he lacks speed. Man, they had him pegged at age 17. Sober judgment led to Tom Brady swimming in his lane, if I can mix sports and metaphors for a second. He knew who he was, he went after it, and that's why we all root against him now. I mean, who can stand Tom Brady? He's in the Super Bowl, we know he's gonna win, we don't want him to win. None of that matters because he swims in his lane. Here's number two, here's a second drunk way of viewing yourself, is that low self-esteem is the major problem. Would you just, in your chair where you are, nod your head if you've heard that line of reasoning that low self-esteem is people's major problem? Have you heard that line of thinking before? Okay. Think about this, if, if you get the, the problem wrong, you're gonna start with the solution wrong. I think that's the wrong problem. If that's your starting point, then the solution, think about what the solution should be. The solution should be think more about yourself And think higher of yourself. What's our passage say in Romans 12? Think of yourself with sober judgment. Not necessarily more of yourself or higher than yourself. The Bible says something different that actually high self esteem is the problem. Maybe self loathing, maybe self exaltation may go back and forth. And the solution is you must think accurately of yourself. C.S. Lewis talks about humility, and he says something along the lines of not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So it's not diminish yourself and who you are, but just stop having yourself at the center of everything. Let me give you a little homework assignment if you're into homework. Some of you are like, sweet, I got homework at church. Revelation chapter 2, Jesus talking to the seven churches. If you read through Jesus talking to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, here's what you see. Jesus is a mirror telling a group of Christians to think soberly about themselves. Ephesians, you work hard, but you don't love. Church at Sardis, you have a reputation of being alive, but I see you, you're actually dead. Here's what's critical about looking at the seven churches. None struggled with low self-esteem. Jesus doesn't come and pump up the church with, you can do anything you want to be if you just set your mind to it and follow your gut. He doesn't do that. Why? Because that would be wicked. It would be an untruth. He tells them, think about it in these terms, to swim in their lane." Here's what I see. I see you're doing this really good. You're allowing this to go on. Knock it off or else judgment's coming. Swim in your lane. Each of these churches looks a little bit different and it's a beautiful, glorious thing. Here's the second thing about the seven churches. The seven churches clues us Americans to think collectively in our giftedness and not just individually. I would venture to guess that if I took a poll, looking back on Revelation 12, uh, Romans 12 that we just read, when I talked about, about an individual part belonging to a body, my hunch is, I was born and raised in San Jose. I know this area well. We thought individually about that. We thought, yeah, I am uniquely gifted. I play a part in the bigger part. But what the churches of Revelation tells us is this, collectively, Calvary Church, you are gifted. God has drawn gifts here. And so to think collectively about our giftedness, not just individually. All right, so sober is better than drunk, amen? That was very convincing, that's awesome. Let's try it one more time. Sober is better than drunk, amen? Yeah, they're like, I think that's the right answer. The Jesus answer is to say amen to that one. Know your lane. Now, guess to the heart of the matter. Here's point two, it's super simple. It's swim. Know your lane and then swim. Look at, look at verse six in Romans 12. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. It's not enough to know your lane assignment. It's not enough to understand all about the different strokes. You must get wet. In 1 Peter 4, it says each has received a gift. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says that gifts are given for the common good. And here in Romans, Paul says, use them for Pete's sake. Your lane does no good if you are not in motion. So use your gift. Now I swam as a kid um, at Westmont Aquatics. And so I would go over there and, and swim and do events and all that kind of stuff. And by the time high school rolled around, I almost didn't go out for the team and here's why. I took a simple math formula of my mediocre social life plus Speedo equals disaster. So I thought, man, you couldn't pay me enough to go out for this sport, even though I really, really, really wanted to swim. I thought adding a Speedo to my life could do nothing but harm. But praise God, I went out for the swim team, made it, and enjoyed four years of doing that. Unused gifts helps no one. In fact, here's something true of the body physically. It's true of this body. It's true of the collective church of the South Bay, and that is this. That when body parts do not exercise their role, when they do not function in the way they are designed to function, that only makes sense in relation to the whole, it injures the rest of the body. It actually becomes a burden to the rest of the body. Isn't it true in this church that there are things that aren't functioning and people that aren't functioning in a healthy way, and because of that, the rest of the body has to take up the slack. You put too much strain on that, and eventually that body who's trying to play two positions is gonna get injured, frustrated, burned out, and then quietly leave saying God called them somewhere else. Danny didn't forward me any emails. I don't know specifics. I just know church. I know it's true in my church. Calvary, what is your lane? Where have you been? One of the things I think Christians ought to be really good at is listening to their life. And I love that video that people are moving. It has to be God calling you to Texas, right? I mean, if you live in California and he's calling you to Texas, that young couple must be listening to the Lord. I love that. That's good stuff. Maybe the wisdom would say, oh, you're pregnant. Don't go do it now. It's COVID. Don't go do it now. Nonsense. The Lord is calling me. He'll make it make sense as I obey. Calvary, where have you been? There is a long, rich history of ministry from this church. Praise God for that. Celebrate that. Look back on that. Honor that. Tell those stories. But here's the next question, where are you going? I happen to know you guys are in a season of leadership transition. Let me tell you one of the most amazing things about Foster the Bay. I talk about Calvary regularly to other churches. Here's why. I have met personally with a man named Bob, and personally with a man named Dale, and personally with a man named Mark. Foster the Bay came into this church because really the heart of Monica Bush was the gateway, but then Bob grabbed hold of it, and that baton was passed to Dale, and that baton was passed to Mark. That is a remarkable story. That this church has continued that. It's so common for new leaders to come in and just sort of wipe the slate clean and not be interested in what was before. So Calvary, where have you been? Where are you going? And how do you fit into the greater Bay Area church? I think churches can get so locked into where they are that they miss the bigger picture. They never go to the grander family party. And I think churches can err the other way, always looking at what is every other church doing? Missing their lane, missing the stuff that's for them. I don't have the secrets on what the balance is, but I know those are two pretty big ways that we can falter. God will teach us if we seek him first. All right, so swimming is better than sitting. So get moving and stay moving. Here's number three. Number three is stay in your lane. It's one thing to know your lane. It's another thing to get in the pool and start swimming. The third thing is to finish the race. Stay in your lane. Do most what you do best, is what one of my profs at San Jose Christian College used to say. Once God calls you forward, persevere and remain faithful. A friend of mine asked about a next ministry position. He said, do you think this position or this position fits me best? I really respect your your input. I said, I don't have a clue. I barely have a clue for my own life. Here's what I know. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. God will tell you. I hope most that you are called by God to it because whether it seems like it fits on the front end or seems like it doesn't fit on the front end and will be irrelevant about nine battles in Nine battles in, you'll be so tempted to quit and give up that all that will matter is, was I really called to this or not? And if you were called to it, that's your lane. Keep going, press on, keep swimming. Verse six again, let me just reread it. Listen to this list of of, of gifts and not just the difference, um, but, but some unique things Paul says here. Verse six, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And now here's the gifts, ready? If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Do you notice Paul isn't just listing gifts, but he's exhorting various members to activate their gifts for the good and health of the whole body. He also gives some qualifiers, some modifiers. I've had these sort of bolded so you can kind of see. Why does he do that? Why didn't he just give you the list? He does it because we're all the same. We all have gifts. We all belong to the same body. But we're all very, very different. Which means our joys and struggles will come from different places. Each gift comes with a warning. You will be tempted to stop or switch lanes midway through. Some of the gifts he simply repeats right? The gift of service, then serve. Teach, teach. Exhortation, then exhort. I think the reason he does that is this. He's saying, don't stop because no one thanks you anymore. Don't stop because people don't applaud or recognize your giftedness. Develop your gift and then go hunt for ways to use your gift. But for others, he points to specific ways it can go wrong. I think there's a warning for us here. And again, think individually about this, but also collectively. Is there a unique role that Calvary holds in the greater Bay Area, South uh, Bay Area Church? Prophets, he says in proportion to our faith. Prophets, don't add yourself to what God is telling you. Let it be the pure message of God. Those who contribute do so generously, or another translation says sincerely. Don't do it with mixed motives. Leaders are to lead with zeal or diligence. Why is that given? Because if you lead in business, if you lead in the home, if you lead in the church, you will be tempted to quit, to chuck it all, to say I'm done with this race, get me out of this lane, to the merciful, You are to be sensitive to the needs of others. Act with cheerfulness and not with resentment or begrudgingly. Isn't it so easy to get proud or complacent in our gifting? Complacent because we just think, oh, this is just what I do. This is is my lane. And we can kind of begin to coast. I think that staying in your lane actually takes fierce intentionality. Let me take you back to the last Olympics, Rio Games. Remember hashtag Phelps, Phelps face? This gave, this gave new meaning to putting on your game face. Well, what's happening is this, he was back in the green room, focused on his race, listening to his tunes, and right in front of him was his rival, Chad Leclos, And he was sort of dancing around and sort of mocking Phelps. You know it's big when it becomes an emoji, right? If you can Phelps phrase your friends on your phone, that's a big deal. Later in the pool, Phelps kept his eyes straight ahead while his rival took his eyes off of the lane he was in and literally watched Michael win gold in the 200-meter butterfly. I mean, is that not a lesson for us right there, church? I know I'm telling you two things. Look around, see how you fit in the greater Bay Area church? Know your lane and swim in it. Stay in your lane, Calvary. God gives specific gifts to specific people to accomplish specific tasks, and he gathers specific gifts to specific churches to accomplish specific tasks. You already know this, so I'm just a sibling in Christ reminding you of the obvious. This will take fierce intentionality tons of work. One of my favorite definitions of a disciple came from teaching through a book some years ago, and our church came up with this, that a disciple of Jesus gives himself or herself to what God is saying, and then lives out what he finds. I don't just mean reading the Bible, although that's a vital, of course, part of it, But when you give yourself to say, God, what are you saying in this moment? It means we look back at where we've been. It looks where we're headed. It looks like, God, what have you gathered here in our church? So finishing is better than starting. Get going and keep going. All right, let me drive this home for Calvary Church of Las Gatas. People don't know this, but high school swimming is actually a team sport. It looks like a bunch of individuals just swimming events. But here's the truth, no individual swimmer can beat the other school on their own. It's a cumulative thing. Here's how this gets lost. Swimmers get to a point where they say, did I beat my time? Did I win my heat? Do I look good in this Speedo, right? No one thinks that actually. But, but that's where it, it can be, it can be, is we, we begin to think it's an individual sport. We lose sight of the fact that your third place that looked like somewhat of a defeat if you were gain, you know, aiming for number one, actually contributed to the overall cumulative score. You will not know the score until long after your race. Consider that. So we keep going to coach and say, coach, what lame am I in? What am I supposed to swim? And then you absolutely give it your all and don't give up until you finish it. Calvary, you're part of a great big team. That means that your swim directly affects my church. Your event, your heat, how you do directly affects. And what I'm doing over in South San Jose directly affects this church. I'm so grateful for the opportunity, by the way, to be here. And I think that just anytime there's a pulpit swap amongst churches, I think there's a real health to that. I'm mindful every week. I, by the way, I love the team that meets ahead of time. I love the heart and spirit. It was true back in November 2019 when I was here. It's still true today that there's a a spirit of humility and seeking God behind the scenes. Man, I'm probably about out of time, but I'm gonna keep going, just yank me off if I have to go, okay? Christian collaboration, let me just say this. Christian collaboration is I think one of the most massive, powerful, impactful forces on the planet. We come together and the forces of evil absolutely melt when Christians gather for a united purpose. Of course, what makes Christian collaboration Christian is Christ. There's no fellowship apart from Christ. There's no fellowship with one another. There's no fellowship with God apart from Christ. There's not an example you can follow. There's not a command you can obey. There's not a warning that you can heed apart from the work of Christ in your life. If you're doing something else apart from Christ, it's something other than Christian collaboration. But in Christ, all of that changes. Let me give you a couple of concrete examples from my life because it's what I know best, okay? It's the three biggest areas of focus in my life. Number one is my marriage. I just drove by Faith Lutheran Church. It is your next door neighbor church. It's about a half mile away. Our home church was now, it's now Venture Church. It was called Los Gatos Christian. We could not get married at our home church because of the 89 earthquake. 27 years ago, my wife and I got married at Faith Lutheran Church. And you wanna talk about Christian collaboration. When a husband and wife say, I do, they are committing to a lane. They're committing to saying, God, work through these two individuals and make us something new and together. That's in the family. How about in my home church? Neighborhood Bible Church is about a 16-year-old church plant. And when I showed up, um, we share a fence line with John Muir Middle School. And the very first graduation I heard it was bilingual. It was English and Spanish together. Complete, the whole thing was bilingual. I just came from Valley Church in Cupertino where there was a lot of uh, Asian Indian influence but there was very little Spanish. All of a sudden, I realized I'm in a neighborhood that God put a lifelong youth pastor next to a public middle school in a Spanish speaking neighborhood. Why is that vastly important It's because of this. I thought I was Mexican until I was age eight. Now here's why. My mom was born in Mexico City. She's fluent in Spanish, and I liked Mexican food. (laughs) Go back to before you were eight. That's solid evidence right there. I mean, I was (laughs) utterly shocked to find out I was not Mexican when I was eight years old. I happen to know enough Spanish for about two sentences to sound very, very authentic. So as a church plant, I had nothing to do but meet the neighbors, I would walk around and talk to neighbors, I would speak Spanish to them, they would come, they would last two weeks, they'd say, Pastor, you've been so kind, but we cannot keep up with the language. I say, I get it, when I go down to my family in Mexico, it's exhausting, I can't do it either. So I began to pray from year one, God, supernaturally gift me with Spanish, because I don't feel like learning it, or bring me a teammate who speaks Spanish. Five years into the ministry, that's 10 years ago now, A sportscaster from Telemundo, by the name of Angel, joined our staff. I have not paid him one dollar in earthly funds. He's being richly rewarded in heaven. I can't pay him. He actually altered his career at Telemundo so he could give more time at the church. He's just a tent-making pastor, has revolutionized our ministry. One of the greatest things about our church no one orchestrated from the beginning, and that is this. We have two heart languages, Spanish and English, but we're one church. I told him at the outset, I said, I'm not interested in renting space to another language speaking church. I'm okay with that. That's just not who we are. So, if you're going to come on this team, we're going to figure out how Spanish speakers and English speakers, immigrants and natives can get along and figure out being a family. Does that sound good? He said, Si. That means yes in Spanish. <laughs> oh, wait, we went. The last thing I, I want to talk about is Foster the Bay. Foster Bay was born right here. In fact, I was remembering this story. Uh, In an upper room somewhere here, we had our very first launch meeting. If someone comes to an interest meeting, they say, I wanna become a foster family or learn more about it. We send them to a launch meeting. We partnered with the county. And a woman named Susan from the county was upstairs in a room here at Calvary somewhere. I don't know where it's like a maze here. And I was there, We we had cast vision for this. We were one of the first five churches along with Calvary. And when I cast vision at our little church, we had four families step forward and say, we want to become foster families. I'm like, okay, I get I'm confusing sometimes. Let me reiterate what a foster family is. Are you sure? Yes, we're sure. Awesome, amen. So my wife and I said, you know, we're calling our friends this. We've done international adoption. Let's see what they're going through. Let's let's put ourselves in their shoes. So we came to the meeting here and at a break, I remember standing next to her, I just was kind of making idle conversation, and I said, are you okay? I said, listen, we're both public speakers. You know, we both do that for a living. You seem a little rattled, you seem a little nervous. Can I get you water, can I get you anything? How are you doing? She said, you said that I seem nervous. I am nervous. She said, I'm used to talking to three, four, five people at most. Do you know how many were in that room? Like 45 or 50. What I should have said is get used to it because we're gonna be packing buildings with people stepping forward to enter into the foster care system. Instead, I just said, oh, sorry. I don't know what I said, but that would have been the awesome answer. Foster the Bay was born and our tagline reiterates, it preaches the sermon I'm talking about. A church for every child. That tagline represents that this is a team sport that we're involved in. In fact, if you think about it, a non-church, Foster the Bay, is swimming in Foster the Bay's lane, which is to come to churches and say, church, raise up a foster family in your midst. And if every church in the Bay Area were to do that, we'd have a long line of gospel-motivated, government-approved people who are waiting to receive children, babies, teens into their home with the love of Jesus instead of the current reality. What's the current reality? It's exactly the opposite. A long line of needy babies, children, kids, and birth families waiting for someone to give their kiddo a safe and loving home while they try and get their life figured out. Man, there's so many cool stories I could tell you, but I'm gonna stop now and just point you to a video. Here's the exciting thing. Uh, Four days ago, this is really recent, four days ago, uh, we had to change our name after six years of being Foster of the Bay and being very invested in that. We had to change our name because of this. The generosity and grace of God burst the dam of the Bay Area. And what God has done here in all 10 counties is now exploding out into other places. Uh, in January, uh, we hired a guy named Ryan. He's a pastor in Orange County. And we became Foster the City. And I want you to hear from our executive director, Philip, to hear more about that. So go ahead and hit the video, guys.
1: Hi there, my name is Philip Patterson, and I'm the executive director of Foster the Bay. And I am stoked to share with you some really exciting news. Uh, For the first time ever, we are extending our coalition of churches and families outside of the Bay Area. And let me tell you why. Uh, As many of you know, about six years ago we launched Foster the Bay and it was in response to an invitation from some social workers in the Bay that told us about a a crisis they were experiencing. There were more kids coming into foster care than there were homes that were ready for them. And she said, do you think that there are churches out there that would want to partner with us uh, to help address this? And so um, over the last six years it's been one of the greatest joys of my life watching the way Bay Area churches and families have stepped forward and responded to that invitation. In fact, There are more than 150 Bay Area churches today across all 10 counties of the Bay um, that have linked arms and are addressing this crisis together. We've raised up more than a thousand households that foster parents, support friends, advocates. And because of this, there are hundreds of children today that have been welcomed into Foster the Bay Homes. It's been so cool to see. But what's what's cool is that it's not just me who's sitting back in amazement and wonder as God builds something really special and unique in the bay area there are actually leaders and churches and families around the country that have seen what God is doing in the bay area and over the last several years they've reached out to us many times saying hey what would it look like for that, that coalition of churches to extend to our area we'd love to have that same experience be able to care for the kids in our communities in our neighborhoods Uh, You know, if we were willing to, to share the model and the resources that we've developed in the Bay Area outside, it's incredible to think that more churches and more places can care for more kids. The truth is there are thousands of kids right now outside of the Bay Area that need love and care and stability. In fact, we had a leader reach out to us just recently saying that what you all have built in the Bay Area, it wasn't meant to stay there. And so after a whole lot of prayer and conversation and seeking the Lord, We believe that the time is right for us to say yes. And so I'm so excited to announce to you that we are extending our coalition of churches and families outside of the Bay right here into Southern California. I wanna take a moment to say thank you to you pastors and foster families and support friends and advocates, to you financial partners. It's because of your yes and your sacrifice and your generosity and your advocacy that now kids, not just in the Bay Area, but in the Bay Area and beyond are gonna experience the love and care that they deserve. This is because of you. And I wanna invite you to join us in the next chapter as we say yes together as we become Foster the City.
0: Galatians 6-9, do not grow weary in doing good. Calvary, I was just praying. I, I pray for you guys all the time. I ride my bike right by your property regularly. You are prayed for and loved by the broader Christian community and just saying, God, give me a supernatural love for the people that I will actually look at this morning. And what's the message? The message is this. Do not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, you're going to reap a harvest. So um, I, I hope that you're embracing this time um, as a church, and uh, I hold this card because you're holding it as well. Um, if you wanna find out more about this, I have a teammate, teammate Anna, and I will be in the back for, for Foster the Bay. Some of you, um, it's, just, it's just a celebration. Come and say hi. Come and say, hey, we've been a part of Foster the Bay, just wanted to say hi. If that's interesting to you, some of you with the worldwide pandemic shakeup, you're figuring out what is next for our household what is next as an empty nester, what is next as a brand new married couple, what's next as a single adult? Uh, Come and talk to us. We'd love to chat with you. Let me pray, and then uh, I'll step off. God, thank you so much for just your grace in our life, God. I thank you that we can sit here this morning and be reminded that we are loved by the Most High King, God, just the fact that you took an interest in us would be enough, but in your over-generosity, God, you, you came to us, you reached out to us, you made us part of your, your very own family. Uh, and so, God, we just, we can't say um, thank you enough, uh, but, Lord, we, we enjoy getting to rest in the finished work of Christ, and with that energy, striving at the good work that you've given us to do. God, thank you for communicating with, with us. Thank you for empowering us. In Jesus' name, Amen.